Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the Congress of Neurological Surgeons Journal Club podcast. Today, we will discuss one of the papers of the year, Oracle Stroke Study, Opinion Regarding Acceptable Outcome Following Decompressive Hemicaniectomy for Ischemic Stroke. I'm Dr. Martina Stippler, and I'm welcoming our discussion. Dr. Honeybull, do you want to introduce yourself, please? Yes, uh, I'm Steve Honeybull. I'm, a, um, uh, I'm from England initially. I moved out to Australia about 15 years ago. I'm a consultant neurosurgeon um, in Western Australia. And I'm Dr. Clement Shermer. I'm at uh, Geisinger in the United States, and I'm a member at large at the Congress of Neurological Surgeons, and I have the pleasure of asking Dr. Honeybull some questions after hearing about his paper. And uh, I'm uh, Dr. Kumar Rasuvan. I'm one of the uh, residents in neurosurgery at uh, Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, in the U.S. Uh, I am a Congress of Neurological School uh, Resident Leadership Fellow this year, and very happy to be here um, to discuss this uh, this important uh, pertinent paper. Okay, wonderful, Dr. Honeybull. If you can uh, give us a little synopsis of the paper, please. Yeah, I mean the, the paper is really looking at um, opinion regarding um, acceptable outcome after stroke, um, and as you know, ischemic stroke um, can develop into what's called malignant um, uh, middle cell infarction with brain swelling. And in these circumstances, consideration is often given to performing life-saving uh, hemicraniectomy. The difficulty is that performing surgery will not reverse the effects of the stroke, and the concern has always been that uh, people will be left with severe disability, which they may feel to be unacceptable. Um, recent studies have actually um, been interpreted as saying that decompressive hemicraniectomy improves outcome. But actually, if you look more closely at the, the results, it only improves outcome if you incorporate modified ranking four as favorable. That means patients, by definition, are dependent. And the question is, how do we feel about this for ourselves? There's no doubt that people can, can adapt to a level of uh, disability um, over many years. But actually, consent implies that we should make decisions regarding this outcome prior to intervention. The paper really looked at um, initially just asking people what they thought about the possibility of survival with severe disability. So in small seminars, uh, healthcare workers were presented with the sort of pathophysiology of stroke, the rationale for decompressive hemicraniectomy, and outcome measures uh, by way of the modified ranking score. And they were just given a hypothetical question. If this happened to you, would you want me to perform life-saving surgery on you, um, given the fact it will not reverse the effects of the stroke? Also, we asked people what they thought would be an acceptable outcome. We then presented a, um, a synopsis of the evidence, the, um, the evidence that surgery does not reverse a stroke but increases the possibility of survival with severe disability. And then I declared my bias, given that I have strong feelings, I don't think that's a good idea. I think it's a bad outcome if you, if you survive with dependency. I also then, <clears throat> by way of reducing the bias or giving a, a, fair, a fair synopsis, I, I explained the disability paradox, <clears throat> where we asked patients in a previous study in terms of um, trauma, we, we got patients back after three years um, and asked them the same question, do you regret having had the surgery? 
And to my surprise, most patients who survive with severe disability said they don't regret having had the surgery. Um, given the evidence, given the dis disability paradox, we then <clears throat> asked people again to reconsider their initial response and say, what do you think now? Um, and we found that certain people changed their mind um, in the fact that they did not want to survive with severe disability. And other, other people said, yes, actually, they would want the chance to either learn to adapt to that level of disability or, um, given the disability paradox, <clears throat> they would actually learn to live with severe disability and be happy with that. Um, so that was basically the, 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 a short synopsis of the actual paper. Okay, that's pretty tremendous. Um, so this is Dr. Clement Shermer again, and maybe I can just uh, start off with uh, commending you and your co-authors on putting this paper together after the um, uh, study that you conducted here. And I think um, this is very well done, and I think it addresses a uh, portion of uh, care that we have to deliver to our patients that is frequently overlooked. Um, that being said, I had a couple of questions, and maybe I'll just start out with one that is fairly uh, uh, background-related, uh, uh, um, that if you're making the argument that uh, shared decision-making process is valued and that it is necessary for this procedure, um, is that in its uh, essence flawed because this is an emergent or at least urgent procedure and do you feel that informed consent in any way or form is actually biased because you're um, discussing long-term outcomes that are fairly hypothetical beyond the just, you know, pure surgical uh, uh, complications or risks that were pertain to the procedure itself? Um, do you think that this is a, a thought shared decision-making model that um, you're, you're putting uh, up here in the first place? That's a very good question, which we could talk, we could talk for hours about, really. <clears throat> I think the short answer is we have to take this into consideration. In the emergent situation, which we're all aware of, <clears throat> it's very difficult to, to make these decisions. But what really I think we failed in is when a patient comes in with their relatives three years later on and say, look, the patient may be left with severe disability, but the relatives say, thanks very much, but no one mentioned this. No one mentioned the fact that it was all about saving a life, and we were, we were waiting for our, our loved one to recover. No one mentioned the fact that the chance of a full recovery is very limited, and the most likely outcome is actually survival with severe disability. So I think I absolutely accept it's very difficult to make these sort of decisions, as often happens at 3 o'clock in the morning. But I think it's incumbent upon us to actually present the evidence, which is now quite clear, that actually it does not improve outcome. It's a life-saving procedure. And at some stage throughout the whole um, consenting process, this outcome has to be mentioned at least. And the question is not from, from I don't know how it happens in the States, but uh, the question is not what do the relatives want done, it's knowing your loved one as you do know them, would the most likely outcome be acceptable to them? And unfortunately, that's a very difficult decision to make or a very different com difficult conversation to have as often happens at 3 o'clock in the morning. I say, I'm not sure how it happens in the States, but in, in Australia, we have to have these decisions. And I, and I think we can't abandon relatives to, to, to make these decisions. We have, to, we have to guide them through them. Uh, 
Uh, I'll just, I guess, uh, piggyback on, on the back of that, uh, you know, ask one of my questions here. It's a little more germane to what we're talking about. Uh, you know, as the recent junior resident, uh, you know, this, this kind of weighs heavily on me as well because I'm, uh, uh, as you all probably remember, usually the one that uh, that's trying to have these conversations in the middle of the night. And, um, you know, I think that it's very important for us to, to understand, uh, as you said, Dr. Honeybull, about what, what this decision looks like to patients retrospectively. But how, you know, how do you see this, the results of the study as being uh, most helpful for uh, for physicians in the consenting process um, in terms of the helpful and how we fit families? Is it perhaps useful to, to use in our minds about deciding whether or not this is somebody we should even offer the procedure to? Um, how do you, do you and how do you find it uh, immediately useful for, for that sort of process? I think that this sort of study is not providing answers. It's more putting people in a, in a, in a situation where they're asking questions. So rather than the assumption that, say, for example, someone is having a neurological, neurological catastrophe and we're called upon to intervene, it's, a different, it's changing the sort of decision-making paradigm such that, yes, we can perform a life-saving operation, but actually we're not going to reverse the effects of the pathology that precipitated the crisis. And given that, the person who's going to survive will do so with, a, with some level of disability. And it's more a question of putting it out there in terms of um, starting the conversation. I mean, all too often we're called upon, I'm sure it happens with yourself, we're called upon late in a scenario. You, know, you must perform something, you must do something, otherwise this person's going to die. Um, mm -hmm. And it's pr promoting the conversation that actually you know, neurosurgery is actually quite a dangerous, a dangerous um, uh, specialty. And all too often we do life-saving operations, but we don't actually produce an outcome that the patient feels to be acceptable. So it's more a question of starting the conversation, I think. So you mentioned earlier that um, you don't know what the state of affairs in the U.S. might be, and I want to give yeah. that back to you. Now, you practiced uh, in the U.K. as well. But tell us yeah. a little bit about, or tell the listeners a little bit about what's the state of affairs when it comes to how patients perceive physician recommendations, how do they participate in shared decision-making as it may apply to Australia, or how that may be different from what you've seen in other countries, and how this may affect how translatable this study really is to other places? Mm. That's, that's, a, that's a good question. And the short answer is I'm not entirely sure. I think it, it doesn't so much vary within Australia. It varies very much within the, the um, relationship with the the physician or surgeon has with the family early on. Um, and some, some families want to be seen to be making decisions. Other families will want you to make the decision. Um, personally, the way I tend to, to um, uh, run these sort of scenarios in real life is the first thing I say to the families is, I don't want you to feel as though you're making a decision. You know, I'm here to make the decision. I can guide you through to provide an outcome that your loved one would feel to be acceptable. Um, now, from a legal perspective, I, I think the families um, do have a strong position in terms of, of if they can override my decision, say, like, I want you to perform life-saving surgery no matter what. Um, but I think in Australia, it's, it's very much a shared, a shared decision-making paradigm. Um, and it's infrequent that actually um, recourse to legal, legal opinion or um, in, it's infrequent actually for there to be major disagreements in terms of uh, intervention. 
Um, and likewise, in terms of life-saving surgery, um, it's very easy to perform the surgery. It's a very simple procedure to do. It's far more difficult to have the long conversation about not intervening. Um, but again, from a sort of a medical legal perspective, it's infrequent that it actually goes down that line. Um, whether it's translatable to other countries, personally, I don't know. Um, it's very similar to the UK, I think. Um, and as I say, I'm not sure how it works in the States. Yeah. As a follow-up to this, do you find that, as far as you can tell, is there any difference between where people come from when it's uh, between a, a you know, populated city um, or a rural area, um, potentially where the family has to travel for hours before they actually can participate at the bedside in this decision-making process um, or so? Does that, yeah. does that make a difference? There's certainly, a, I mean, there's two parts to that question. We're, we're sort of, in Australia, we're the most isolated place on the planet. So patients literally have to come sometimes for 12, 14 hours just to get to Perth. And it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in those situations because if you have to come that far with a sort of neurological catastrophe, um, then um, uh, you're unlikely to survive. So that's a one part of it. The second part really is there any difference between metropolitan um, opinion and people who, who live in the rural aspects of, of Australia and certainly I think that the um, uh, the patients from the rural uh, parts of Australia are often more, much more pragmatic in terms of their opinion um, because they deal with life and death on the, in terms of farming and things like that on a very regular basis so there's certainly differences, differences in opinion and, and, and the way that, um, they approach the decision-making paradigm. If I might jump in here, Dr. Shermer, do you think it uh, can be applied in the United States now that Dr. Hannibal kind of explains the paradigm in Australia? I, I do think that it, uh, it, it varies in your, um, depending on your practice location and your, you know, the area that your patients are coming from. Um, I, I very much do think that there's a difference here. I think, you know, I, I'm not sure if we um, re replicated the study here in the United States, whether or not that effect would be relevant or if it would wash out um, between inter-individual preferences of patients. Um, but in general terms, I do see a difference between a metropolitan area and uh, a um, rural area where you can practice. Hey, um, I'll move on to my other, uh, one of my other questions here. I thought it was very interesting, uh, Dr. Hannibal, that you, at several points in your methodology, uh, kind of uh, described how you took a step back in your presentations to the participants and, and uh, explained your own biases and how you, uh, what you had seen in other studies, which I thought was a very interesting point. And um, just in terms of other research designs, you very seldom see that. What, what was your particular reason for wanting to include that, uh, you know, particularly, uh, for instance, in the second part of the presentation when you talk about the data that you had on patients' retrospective consent for the surgery, and do you think mm. that could have affected how your participants, uh, you know, answered the questions that you had on part two of the survey? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's why I declared my bias. I was trying to be as fair as possible um, because that was my bias. I've done a lot of work on, on looking at opinion, looking at outcome. Um, and the reason I actually did the study looking at long-term outcome following um, surgical intervention in terms of trauma 
was the fact that I was actually hoping to prove that patients who survived did regret having had it done and would not go back and, and would not provide retrospective consent. And I got that completely wrong. Actually, most patients who survived who could provide an answer said no, they were happy with the way they were and they actually had a good quality of life, which surprised me considerably. But I think you have to declare your bias. You have, you, you know, we have to have an opinion. Um, and if you don't declare that, then it will affect, I think, the way, you, the way you portray even more. So I openly said, look, I've told my colleagues, if I had an ischemic stroke, I'd say, um, thanks very much, but I do not want decompressive surgery. And that's my opinion. Um, but I could be wrong. As I found out from the, the retrospective consent study, I got that completely wrong. And that's what I think this sort of discussion is all about. Um, <clears throat> and likewise, opinion varies considerably. Some people do not want to survive with dependency, um, and that's a common finding, especially in, in, in elderly patients. Other people would want life at any cost, and, and that's likewise perfectly reasonable. Um, and it's really finding out where you are on that line, which is, again, what is things like living wills and um, enduring powers of attorney. That's what they're based on. So I think you have to have an opinion, and you have to declare it. Dr. Hannibal, I read a lot about your work. I'm coming more from a trauma arena, and I know you have done yep. a lot of work on that. And it's very, it's, I think it's such an important question to ask the question. It's very interesting that a lot of studies actually coming from Europe or from Australia uh, on that. Um, but there's this uh, cognitive uh, phenomenon of choice supported bias, right? You made a choice. And then three years later, you ask, do you think you made the right choice? And this choice-supported bias says that you will make it fit because you don't want yes. to say, oh, I made choice X, but I really want to cho say choice, but I really want to have choice Y. So do you mm. think this, this bias that we're just going to live with our decision and think we made the right one because, out of, because we are stuck with them, we have to live with them, kind of influences that research a little bit? and. Is there any way we could ever answer this question truly? If people regret to have that surgery done, should it be for stroke or for trauma? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, and the short answer is I'm not sure. Although retrospective consent is often given, it's not always the case. Um, and <clears throat> I mean, I do a lot of uh, this type of procedure. And again, because Perth is so isolated, um, we have long-term follow-up on a lot of patients, and um, certainly so, some patients will say yes because they want to say yes because they want to be seen to be making the right choice, but others say no. Actually, there's high levels of depression, um, uh, high levels of uh, dissatisfaction, um, especially in, in, in stroke patients over 60 years of age. Um, so although, and again, there's a publication bias because most studies are published which do show um, a, a positive level of retrospective consent, but certainly from an anecdotal point of view and from seeing patients who survived in Perth, um, a significant number um, turn around and say, look, actually, this is, this is not for me. I did not want this. And likewise, if you look at some of the studies, I mean, if you look at the most recent rescue ICP study um, in trauma, um, that increased the number of patients who survived in a vegetative state by, I think it was um, uh, by eight times. Uh, a significant number of those subsequently died within six months. So you have to wonder whether it was a right decision to, to, to intervene in those circumstances. 
So I have a couple of questions that are maybe sort of related um, in the sense of that I, I was trying to figure out what the time frame was that these patients did undergo the procedure um, mm -hmm. for, for one. Um, and, uh, you know, the, obviously there's a survivor bias here, right? You, you don't yes. ask the patients who didn't survive, um, uh, you know, what they think about not surviving. And then lastly, mm -hmm. um, you kind of like went after, was there any kind of like regret or uh, so on and so forth uh, when they recalled this, but did you try and not successfully find any kind of validated scales about that? Um, you know, why did you choose the instruments that you chose as far as the questions go? I mean, to answer you the last part first, <clears throat> um, I just wanted to make it as simple as possible. I, I think um, putting scales, I know there are validated scales out there, um, is useful, but mine was a simple yes or no, um, based on the fact that actually, um, are we talking about the, the trauma patients in this context? Uh, well, I think it doesn't really matter uh, which, okay. which like you know, ideology they, they were under. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, in terms of the, scale, the, the way it was questioned, it was a very simple question. So I wanted to keep it as simple as possible, just a yes or a no. Um, yeah. In other parts of the study, we looked at more details to the, the responses that were given. But it's really just a yes or a no because it's a it's a binary decision. You either surgically intervene or you don't. Uh, and unfortunately, in, in, in neurosurgery in these circumstances, it's fairly it's fairly black and white. Um, and as you, as you say previously, it's it's often at three o'clock in the morning. You have to make a decision. You can't do part of an operation. You either do it or you don't. Um, and so that's why I chose that as a, a yes or no uh, type question. Yeah. How about the first part question that I had? How, what's the time interval or like the, the you know, period that these patients had their um, uh, procedures? Like are we talking about a couple of years, 10 years, 20 years? And do you think the understanding of, from our perspective as surgeons of this procedure has changed during that? And is that a, uh, you know, axis or, or a possible confounder in this? Mm. That's, I mean, that's a good question. It's in terms of the time frame, I've been looking at this now for 15 years. Um, throughout that time, if you look at the circumstances in which I surgically intervene, and these are, these are, these are not just my patients, these are patients within the Western Australian um, Neurosurgical Service. Um, yeah. I, try and avoid, <clears throat> I try and avoid decompressive craniectomy as much as possible. Um, and the more I've done, <clears throat> the more I've tried to avoid intervening. So I try medical me measures as much as possible, you know, ventriclostomy and things like that, as much as possible prior to surgically intervening. Has my practice changed? I think I do, I do far less. I think certainly 10 years ago, um, it was almost assumed that if you surgically intervene, the ICP comes down um, and patients survive. And the assumption was that you're making them better. Um, and I think that's changed now considerably, and we have the evidence for that. But it doesn't improve outcome. Um, there are significant complications associated with intervening, um, and outcome is not improved. Patients who don't um, have surgery will do better than patients who require surgery. But if you require surgery as a life-saving intervention, it will improve survival. And I think the evidence is clear for that now. And that's certainly changed my practice in, in the past few years. It's far 
uh, there's far more evidence to turn around to, say, for example, the intensive care doctors and say, look, I'm not going to intervene at this stage. We're going to wait and we're going to try and not intervene for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. I want to thank all the participants. I think this is a very good discussion. Uh, and I want to thank our audience. You listen to the Congress of Neurological Surgeons Journal Club podcast.